This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you to each and every one of you so very much for being here. It's a phenomenal thing to see so many of our colleagues, faculty, students, all here uh, bright and early uh, for today's wonderful events. So it's my great pleasure to now introduce uh, Dr. Claire Brindis, uh, and she'll be introducing the morning. Thank you. Thanks, Samantha. Good morning. I'm Claire Brindis, and I'm the director of the Philip R. Lee Institute for Health Policy Studies. And on behalf of ourselves and our university partners, represented by Chris Schaefer and his wonderful team, It's really our great honor to celebrate the monumental unveiling of this first ever Food Industry Documents Archive. For nearly five decades, our institute has demonstrated its leadership and commitment to improving the health of the public at the local, national, and global level. And this archive embodies our long-established history. We have an incredible amount of excitement in this room and support for today's event, and thanks to every one of you for coming. And thanks to our outstanding speakers who will also have come together to celebrate this incredible event. We have not only an audience here at UC San Francisco, but we have a global audience live streaming this event, and we have over 20 countries that are listening in and we'll be sending in their questions during our question and answer period. So when I think about this archive, I think of a very vibrant tapestry that's been created from many different threads throughout our community. The archive builds on the long-established history at UCSF of outstanding medical providers and researchers dedicated to caring and treating individuals who suffer with problems associated with obesity. But we also honor those who not only studying the underlying biology of disease, but those who study the psychological, the physical, and environmental factors that contribute to this devastating problem. Stellar individuals such as Nancy Adler and Alyssa Eppel, who created COAST, which stands for the Center for Obesity Assessment, Study, and Treatment and my outstanding colleague, Laura Schmidt, who conceptualized and began sugarscience.org, a web-based, evidence-based source of scientific information and its impact on health. And the Sugar, Stress, Environment, and Weight Initiative, which has brought both Alyssa Apple and Laura Schmidt together with leaders throughout the University of California system, working to support and encourage significant changes in our sister institutions. We've also been blessed by individuals such as Anisha Patel, who's a pediatrician who's gone far beyond the clinic walls to work directly in community settings, in daycare centers, schools, and really working to create policy at being able to have water as an alternative to sugar-sweetened beverages. There's Dean Schillinger, who has used poetry and rap to help educate and mobilize young people regarding the impact of diabetes in their underserved communities. But that would not have been enough 
At UCSF, in fact, we have courageous leaders, truly the Sherlock Holmes of scientists, who continue to go upstream to better understand what are the root causes that contribute to our country's disease, such as Rob Lustig, who initially approached me, stressing the importance that public policy could play in shaping the public's perceptions regarding the toxicity of sugar. His collaboration with Laura Schmidt and many others, some of you in this room, led to significant and dramatic progress in the adoption of taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages in San Francisco, the Bay Area, and many countries throughout the globe. Now, while passing policy, public policy, is really a monumental step, it is the translation of policy into practice where we also have to make a difference. Thus, I salute the groundbreaking leaders who connected the dots regarding our responsibility to our patients and employees and who have worked diligently in launching and studying our Healthy Beverage Initiative, an effort to align campus food and drink sales with the growing science about the negative impact of excess sugar consumption on metabolic disease and chronic disease, including heart disease. This archive was also shaped by an earlier visionary worker named Stan Glanz, who initially received a trove of secret tobacco industry documents and who partnered with our library to begin the tobacco industry documents in 1994. That library not only represents a model for our archive, but Stan has played an instrumental role in our archive's development and early success. I'm also deeply grateful to Kristen Kearns, who you will hear from today, who first brought her scientific inquiry regarding the industry's practices to our attention, leading to the development of this archive. And this archive would have never come to life without the wonderful library team who prepared and processed the documents, including Mimi Klausner, Rachel Takata, and Kate Tasker, among many others. Finally, I want to acknowledge Chancellor Sam Hoggood, Vice Chancellor Dan Lowenstein, and Dean Talmadge King of our School of Medicine, who have supported this project. Our public university continues to show such courage in opening the archives to the public, taking on industry influence and its commitment to transparency. What you'll see today is that we have a full agenda with three interlocking pieces. First, we will focus on food politics, past to present. Then we'll focus on activating the archives, and you'll learn about how to use the archives. And then we will end with the future as we write it. You will be hearing from our speakers, each followed by a question and answer period, and encouraging our live stream community to also participate. We have deliberately made our introductions very short of our experts. I can assure you that we could spend the whole morning just telling you about the accolades of these wonderful individuals. So why is this day so monumental for us? This archive comes at an important time in history. Collectively, we're taking great strides to address the longstanding problem of industry influence on our health, food, and human rights. Yet many challenges remain, with multiple whack-a-mole efforts to eliminate or prevent the progress that has been made. We're helping to continue to galvanize a moment 
and a movement. And today, you will have a special opportunity to hear six key leaders speak on the multidisciplinary approaches being taken to question evidence, hold our leaders and scientists accountable, and advocate for the health of our global community. The archives have been a critical part in this work and will be continuing for decades to come. So in closing my introductory remarks, I want to indicate that, as we know, especially at the Institute, data is powerful in creating the changes that we need for this world. I invite you to see these documents for yourself, use the archive, share it widely, start conversations, and use what you hear today to continue your work equipped with more information to create meaningful change. And now I'd like to introduce to you Chris Schaefer, who is the university librarian. Hi. I'd like to thank all of you for coming here today. It's such a great honor for the UCSF Library and its many partners to be part of this uh, wonderful endeavor. Um, As Claire mentioned, um, we began this process all the way back in 1994 with the Tobacco Document Archives, with the now the Truth Tobacco Archives. Um, And we have been digitizing and indexing and making available materials that the industry and the companies that we're studying and that that are the subject of many of the researchers um, in this room um, have have wanted to keep private, have wanted to keep under wraps, have wanted to keep secret. And libraries are culture institutions, libraries are memory institutions, libraries are scholarly communication institutions. And we here at the UCSF Library are dedicated to the principles of open science, to the principles of transparency, to making materials available, keeping them available for the long haul. We're looking at the 100, 200 thousand year future. And we want these documents to be available so that researchers, like many of the people in this room, so that lawyers and health policymakers and others can use them in order to actually influence policy. Um, We recognize that the library's role of collecting and organizing scholarly information is not just for the joy of having a wonderful archive or having a collection of materials or having a lot of books on shelves. It's because those materials get used, get taken out, um, and in the Internet age just get accessed on the web um, in order for people to make change in in our lives. Um, And you can see that. You'll hear from Stan Glantz in a few minutes. Um, you can see the impact that this kind of work has had on on human health. Um, The tobacco um, archives and the work that the researchers in in the uh, Center for Tobacco Control Research um, have done have saved millions of lives. Um, And it's our hope and and our firm belief that the work that you all will be doing and that future researchers will be doing, that other librarians and archivists will be doing with with these materials will similarly have a dramatic impact on human health, that lives will be saved, that people will live richer, fuller, uh, um, and more... um, more promising lives because of the policy changes, because of the impact that the work that you all do with these materials um, will, will have. 
So Claire mentioned a few of the people in the archives who have been involved in this project. I joined UCSF a little bit over a year ago, and I have to say the industry document archives and this work is one of the things that drew me here. I was up in Oregon for the previous 10 years. But one of the things that brought me here is the opportunity to work with all these wonderful people. And I've only been here for a year, so I can't really take credit for the work that you're going to be seeing today, the research that's been generated from it. So I'd like to thank a few of the people in in the room and some who aren't in the room um, for their role in the archives from the library side. And that includes um, Mimi Klausner, Dee Kramer, Kate Tasker, um, Rachel Takeda, all archivists who have worked on this project. Um, in addition, we have some of our technologists here, the people who have built the systems that make these materials available for you to use that allow us to do things like cross-indexing these materials so that you can search the tobacco and the sugar archives at the same time and find a really treasure trove of information that shows the overlaps between these industries and the connections between these industries that have played such a role. And so I'd like to recognize Rebecca Tang and Sven Meyer. In addition, there's the leadership of our archives team. Polina Ilieva is the head of our archives and special collections and leads the team that is building the industry documents archives. And I, I would be remiss to not thank my good friend and um, longtime colleague Karen Butter, the former university librarian, who began this process over 20 years ago with Stan and grew it to be what it is today. Um, and so I'd, right now, very quickly, I'd like to ask all of the people I just named, if you're in the room, to please stand up. So in a, in a little while, um, Rachel will be telling you about how you can use the archives, but one of the reasons I ask those people to stand up is so that those of you in the room who want to can buttonhole them during the breaks, can ask them questions, because as librarians and archivists and technologists, we're here to tell you that we want to help. We want to be part of this process. We're proud to be partners in this endeavor, um, and any of you who have any questions at all could approach me or any of the people that, that just stood up, and we'd be happy to help you understand how better to leverage these documents to really make change in the world. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Claire to introduce our lead speaker. Thanks, Chris. So it's really an honor for me, and as I'm going to model how short our introductions are going to be, um, to welcome home Marion Nessel, um, who will speak to you about Food Politics 2018, Food Industry Influence on Nutrition Research. She is going to speak about her seventh book, and we're so thrilled that you're here. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Um, and it's just wonderful to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I was an associate dean at the UCSF School of Medicine for 10 years in the 1970s. I consider it a former life, um, you know, a previous incarnation. Uh, it, and it's really lovely to be back. It's especially lovely to be back at the Philly Center because Philly was played a very, very important role in my life. I'm here today because of Philly, and I do get to see him occasionally in New York. Um, so I, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I'm so pleased to have been invited to talk about this uh, library, because it 
played a very important part in my book, and it solved a, just a major problem for me. So this is actually my 10th book. Uh, it came out two weeks ago. It's brand new. You can still smell the ink on it. Um, and the first chapter of the book is totally dependent on the food industry documents library here. And so I thought I would start with that story and then tell you a little bit about the book. So the story begins bizarrely enough with the Russians hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails. You will recall that in um, January 2017, the press announced that they had figured out that the Russians had attempted to influence the um, the uh, 2016 election. There was this big plan to subvert it, and one of the elements in that subversion uh, was announced in October 2016 that there had been emails that were hacked from advisors of Hillary Clinton. You're probably wondering why I'm talking about this. Um, and th these emails were posted on WikiLeaks, but there was a separate set of emails that were posted on a brand new site called DC Leaks. And on that site were emails of a, a, an advisor to Hillary Clinton whose role in her campaign, I still can't figure out, um, but her name was Capricia Marshall. And her emails were posted on DC Leaks, and there were stories about how embarrassing they were because they came across as very elitist. Um, and why I'm talking about this is because among these emails were a cache of a collection of emails between her and a vice president of Coca-Cola because while Capricia Marshall was working on Hillary Clinton's campaign, she was also consulting for Coca-Cola and billing the company $7,000 a month for her services. We know that from the emails. Now, I heard about these emails um, in, a, for, uh, for, in a complicated way. My book, um, Soda Policy, Politics, which is about the soda industry, had just come out, and I heard from two people about these emails because I'm in them. And <laughs> that was a surprise. So I heard from Kyle Fister, somebody I've never met, but who runs an organization called Ninjas for Health, whatever that means. And he put on his website about Coca-Cola's worldwide political strategy to kill soda taxes um, and talked about the emails. And in the emails that he posted on his website was this one from a Coca-Cola executive saying, please find a summary of Marion Nestle's presentation at Sydney University. And it went on to talk about that. And I couldn't believe it. And then I remembered that in the beginning of 2016, I had been doing a fellowship at the University of Sydney with Lisa Biro. Many of you may remember Lisa Biro. Lisa Biro, she's a UCSF alum who's now at the University of Sydney. Um, and I was working with her 
uh, in her group in Sydney. And as part of what I was doing there, I gave a talk to the Nutrition Society of Australia, a small group. And at that, just before I gave my talk, somebody came up and said, um, there's somebody from Coca-Cola in the audience. Uh, is that going to be a problem for you? And I said, of course not. My book, Soda Politics, had just come out. I assumed that there was somebody from Coca-Cola in every talk I give. <laughs> and you know who you are. <laughs> the, um, I also heard from somebody else I didn't know, uh, Russ Green, who's a member of, who publishes a website under the heading of the Russells, and he's involved with CrossFit, uh, the exercise program. And he wrote me and said, you're in the emails, and published this blog post in which they talked about my work at Sydney. And what the email said was that they should be monitoring my activities while I was in Australia. They should monitor my conference presentations and who I talk to. And they also should monitor what Lisa Biro was doing there. And that led to a big story in the Sydney Morning Herald about Coca-Cola's secret plan to monitor Lisa Biro's work with this terrific illustration that I truly love. <laughs> truly love. Now, what these, um, what these emails revealed was Coca-Cola's involvement in um, influencing reporters and attempting to influence how they discussed um, Coca-Cola's research and also how they were tracking the, um, the, the activities of cr potential critics in far-flung corners of the world. Um, and it's quite possible that Coca-Cola was doing a lot more because a story came out in February 2017 about um, a man named Simon Barquera at the Public Health Institute in Cuernavaca in Mexico and about a anti a soda tax advocate an anti a soda tax advocate in Mexico Alejandro Calvillo and they had spyware installed on their uh, telephones spyware that it was created in Israel to track terrorists and sold only to governments and yet somehow uh, these soda tax advocates had this spyware uh, installed on their telephones and as it happened, I had a Fulbright to Mexico a month later, and I was in Mexico um, at the Public Health Institute, and there was a conference there, and Laura Schmidt came to that conference, and there's a picture of Laura, Simone Barquera, and... Alicia, um, who, who were there, and we had dinner one night at the conference, and I told Laura about the DC Leaks website, and I said, I'm having a, just a terrible time figuring out how to cite these emails. I just don't know how to do it. Um, and, and I'm worried, I'm worried that the site will get taken down and that I won't be able to cite them because it won't exist. And Laura said, don't worry about it. 
We'll have the librarian copy them. Enter Dee Dee Kramer, who within minutes sent me, oh, I want to go back and just notice the date, March 3rd. Within just a few days, maybe a week or two, Dee Dee Kramer sent me these code numbers for the Capricia Marshall emails, and that turned out to be a really good thing, because by the end of March, that site was gone absolutely gone. I checked the Wayback Machine, and the last time that site appeared on the Wayback Machine was March 21st, and there was an article about these websites in Fortune magazine. I wrote the writer and said, do you have any idea why the site was taken down? And this was his explanation, that the Russians saw no point in keeping it online. It had served its purpose. It did the damage. Uh, Leaving it there would only make it easier to do forensic studies during the Mueller investigation. So here they are at UCSF. Thank you to all of you. Um, So it also solved a terrific problem for me. I didn't know how to start my book. It's the first chapter. It may have been difficult, but it was just a gift, an absolute gift. Um, So my book is about food industry funding of nutrition research, and I have to say it's a hot topic these days. Uh, JAMA and Science have had several articles about conflict of interest in industry funding over the last year, and in fact, um, the most recent issue of Science that discussed it in September uh, talks about this as meta-research. I'd never heard the term before. It turns out I'm a meta-researcher. I was very excited to find it out. So I want to give you an example of something that's not in the book because it came out afterwards, but it's a perfect example of why this matters. Uh, These were a series of investigative reports in the New York Times by a reporter named Ronnie Karen Rabin, um, who wrote about, who got a tip from somebody at NIH that the alcohol industry had been funding an enormous clinical trial um, that was actually designed to demonstrate that one drink a day would reduce your risk for heart disease. Um, And she wrote a series of articles about it. She, through Freedom of Information Act, got emails. Uh, UCSF should get those emails from her uh, because they'd be really interesting. The story that she, the stories that she wrote indicated that the alcohol industry was paying the NIH $67 million to the foundation to conduct this trial. The emails demonstrated that the alcohol industry influenced the investigator at uh, NIH, the main person who was in charge of it, that they influenced the study design, and that essentially the NIH people had promised the alcohol industry that this study would be designed so it would show benefits of alcohol and most definitely would not show uh, any harm of alcohol. When, When these articles came out, The NIH said they would investigate. Um, Within a month or so, the investigation, the early investigation must have indicated that there was really a scandal here, and they stopped enrollment in the study. And a few months later, when the investigative report came out and it was absolutely scathing, they stopped the trial. Um, So this is the kind of thing that indicates the importance of these kinds of documents. Now, I want to say just a few words about my book. 
Um, I actually was quite well prepared to write this book because I had been writing about food industry influence on research societies, nutrition societies, and advice to the public. Since 2001, I had an article in 2001 that I incorporated into my book, Food Politics, which came out in 2002. And then when I was writing Soda Politics, I began looking at the Coca-Cola's funding of research, so it was on my mind. Uh, And during the period that Soda Politics was in production, not yet out, um, I started running across so many food industry funded studies with results that were predictable from the funder that I started collecting them and every time I had five, I would post them on my blog. And I did that for a whole year. And during that year, I posted 168 studies that were industry funded. Of those, 156 came out with results that were favorable to the sponsors. Interest only 12 were unfavorable. Okay, this is a convenient sample. It's not very systematic. Um, But it certainly was in the direction of a lot of research that's been published that I'll tell you about. and it was, and there were some use, some interesting findings from it. For one thing, lots and lots and lots of food companies fund research. Um, I talk about Coca Cola a lot because Coca Cola got caught, but lots and lots of companies fund research that comes out with results that they can use in marketing. I'll give you a recent example that is not in the book because it came out more recently. Um, I thought I just loved this. Um, mangoes are better for constipation than fiber supplements. So my question when I see studies like this is, who paid for this? (laughs) Bingo, the National Mango Board. And I have to tell you, my current favorite was sent to me yesterday uh, by a former student of mine. This is something in a a journal called Scientific Reports. Um, If you drink beer, it prevents symptoms of Alzheimer's. Yay! Um, And these were Japanese investigators and uh, five of the six investigators work for the Kirin Brewing Company. What a coincidence. But what really got me started on this book, and I can, I can mark the day on which I decided that I was going to be writing this book, um, was the day that Anna Hatt O'Connor um, published a report in the New York Times that Coca-Cola was funding a group called the Global Energy Balance Network, who were investigators who were arguing that exercise is more important than what you eat or drink um, in obesity something that is contrary to most research. And the idea that Coca-Cola was funding research like this, that investigators were taking it, and that universities were allowing them to do so, was so shocking that even Fox News was shocked. Um, I'm just going to tell you what I did with the book. I got started on it right away, and I began by reading drug industry, uh, studies of drug industry funding, and here we go back to Phil Lee again. Uh, The book on the far left was a book published by Phil Lee and Alan Silverman in 1974. It was one of the first books on drug industry funding of research and practice that indicated what an enormous influence this funding had, and since then, 
then, there have been libraries of books on drug industry, funding up to and journals and magazines, thousands of studies, uncountable numbers of studies. And these studies tend to show the same kinds of results. They show that sponsored research almost invariably favors the sponsor's interests. What a coincidence. That the influence of gifts is absolutely there. Larger gifts have a more important effect than small gifts, but even a gift as small as a pen and a pad of paper with a logo on it for a drug, or a meal as little as $13 is enough to change prescription practices. This influence is unconscious, unintentional, and unrecognized, largely. The recipients of the gifts don't realize that it influences them, and they deny the influence. The justifications for taking industry money are largely invalid. Disclosure is necessary, but doesn't take care of the problem. And policies for managing uh, conflicts of interest are absolutely essential. So I was interested in fi to find out how that kind of overwhelming body of research affected food and nutrition research. And um, here I had a much smaller database to work with. I was able to find precisely 11 studies between 2003 and 2018 that examined the funding effect of the effect of industry funding um, on health. And these studies varied in the product, although half of them dealt with sugar-sweetened beverages. They varied in the health outcome that they were looking at, the methods, and so forth. But in general, they support what was learned from drug industry funding. They favored the sponsor. They skew the research question, and they put a positive spin on results. Here again, we thank Lisa Biro and her group for the extraordinary work that they're doing on this um, aspect. And they just had a paper come out on the influence of industry sponsorship on the research agenda, which is where most of the biases show up. There's a big difference between asking uh, for research proposals, please give us research proposals that will demonstrate the benefits of yogurt, grapes, pecans on health. There's a big difference between asking that question and asking what effect will grapes, yogurt, and pecans have on health. Um, these studies that are funded by industry tend to require looking proposals that will look for benefits. So industry funding has consequences. It raises risks for the biased research agenda, results and interpretations. It distorts dietary advice, and it induces loss of trust among the public. There are also personal risks, risks such as the things um, for researchers and opportunity costs. You don't get invited to be on prestigious committees. You appear sold out. And there are personal risks for advocates um, like being spied on. Um, I, I must say that not everybody is going to agree with this, and I spend a great deal of time in the book rebutting arguments from people who take industry funding that it has no influence, that if you say anything about it, you're making an ad hominem personal criticism, that career goals and ideology are much more important uh, or just as biasing as industry funding, and that if you disclose, that's all you have to do. Um, there's a huge body of literature to dispute those. Um, but nutrition research is under attack these days 
from many, many sources, um, statisticians at Stanford are now arguing that nutrition researchers should disclose their advocacy as well as their dietary preferences in their papers. And if you're on one of these diets, you should be disclosing it. So I'm going to disclose... This is my standard conflict of interest statement, or it was until last year when I'm actually officially retired from NYU. This is what retirement looks like. Um, the, um, so and I will fully disclose, I'm an omnivore. Uh, I like food really a lot. Um, so I spend quite a bit of time in the book uh, giving recommendations for researchers, food companies, reporters, and eaters. Um, and I hope that everybody who looks at research or looks at reports of research will be concerned about who funded it. Um, and I'm very, very happy to be here because if you want to do the research, you have to have the documents, and those documents have to be freely available. So I thank UCSF for making those documents freely available, and I will stop here, and thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you today. Thanks, Thanks Marianne, for an awesome talk. Uh, we have some time for Q&A. Uh, mainstream medicine uh, has begun to marginalize the research that you and I and others do to try to call out the conflicts of interest, mm-hmm. um, uh, either by making you declare the kinds of foods you eat or support, uh, or uh, in a more nefarious experience that, that our group had, where we were accused by um, first by industry, but then by the um, Annals of Internal Medicine, where we had published our work, as having something known as an intellectual conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And this construct of intellectual conflict of interest has begun to to grow quite uh, mm-hmm. and accelerate in mainstream mm-hmm. journals and uh, professional societies. And I'd love you to comment. And, mm-hmm. and as you said, the, the accusations that these intellectual conflicts of interest are as powerful as the multi-billion dollar conflicts of interest that the industry faces. That's the claim mm-hmm. uh, that they make. And um, I'd, love, I'd love you to comment on mm-hmm. uh, what this means and what... Um, the ethical response to such, uh, you know, we certainly have biases, but does, does it rise to a conflict of interest and yeah. what should we I, do about it? I discuss this at length in the book. And here again, I thank Lisa Bureau because her group has published a series of articles on exactly this question. The, um, I think there's a really big difference between industry funding and intellectual conflicts of interest or ideological or dietary conflicts of interest. Um, and everybody who does research, no exceptions, wants to prove a hypothesis. You can't do science without wanting to prove your hypothesis. So yes, there are going to be biases built into any kind of design of research questions, but across the spectrum of research, those biases are going to be different. They're going to depend on the individual researcher. Many of the biases will be inherent and obvious from the way the research question is framed and from the kind of question that's being asked. That's different from industry funding because industry funding, the results of the studies, whether consciously or unconsciously, come out favorable to the sponsor's interest. Um, 
there, and industry funding is not intrinsic to the research process. You can do research without industry funding. You can get funding elsewhere, or you can do what I do and do research that doesn't require any funding. Um, so I think there's a big difference. And the attack on um, the idea that industry funding is a problem is very disturbing. There are now scientific journals that require you to declare your ideological conflicts of interest. I think this is a very, very bad idea, and they shouldn't be doing it. Nature is doing this, I think, um, and they shouldn't be doing it. So I completely agree. This looks like an attack on uh, concerns about industry funding, and I think everybody should be pushing back on it. Industry sponsoring research studies is bad enough, but industry sponsoring societies and oh. journals is even worse. Mm -hmm. Because these, uh, you know, shall we say, biased articles have to be published somewhere. Mm -hmm. And they're all taking money also. Mm -hmm. How do we get them to disclose? Well, I have two chapters in the book about industry funding of nutrition societies, one of which I belong to, and I'm very, very concerned about its relationship with industry. And I detail in both, I'm talking about the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which I don't belong to, and the American Society for Nutrition, which I do. Um, both of them take industry funding, and both of them are in very compromised positions as a result of that. Uh, within the Academy of Nutrition, and dietetics, there has been an organization that was focused on that issue and that pushed the society to try to change some of its practices. Uh, my colleagues who went to the most recent academy meeting said that the expo, the, the exhibit of products and all of that, was much more subdued than it had been in previous years, and the only one that really got their attention was the Sugar Association association which is still exhibiting um, at, at that at that place. The American Society for Nutrition is more complicated because most of the leaders of the organization, the editors of the journals, the um, people who win prizes are people who are taking industry money and deny that it has any effect on what they do. Science is science, is their argument, and the industry funding doesn't affect what they do, despite the empirical observation that it absolutely does affect what they do. Um, so they have had, um, because of pressure from within the organization, a trust committee that met for a couple of years and is supposed to come out with a report any day now um, in which this committee was looking at the whole question of of industry funding and trying to figure out how the society should deal with it. I don't know what the report says. I've been unable to get anybody to leak it to me, not for lack of trying. Um, but I was. But they announced at the last meeting that um, it looked like the committee was split between people on the committee who thought that the society should take no food industry money at all and those who thought the society should take the money but set up some kind of framework for managing it. I discuss frameworks for managing it a lot in the book. I don't have an easy solution to the problem, but um, at least I'm hoping that the book will get them to worry about it a little bit more. That would be nice. So thank you so much. Wonderful talk. 
it's really impossible to do whole food research without funding from special uh, interest groups. And um, avocados, we can all agree, are a little bit different from Coca-Cola. For example, there was a recent study at Stanford looking at raw milk and its impact on uh, uh, digestive issues, and they needed to take money both from the raw milk special interest and uh, also from philanthropists. Um, What do you propose to do uh, to do whole food uh, research? Because uh, there really is not a funding stream for that. Well, I would ask the question, why do you want to do it? Um, I know why the food companies want to do it. They want you to eat avocados instead of some other food. But the basis of healthy diets is eating a wide variety of unprocessed foods of all types, of all types of unprocessed foods. Why would you want, and I don't believe in superfoods. I think all fruits and vegetables have benefits, and the only reason for doing this kind of food, of this kind of research, is to do it for marketing purposes. One food isn't going to make any difference, in, or make very much difference, or a measurable difference in a diet that, take, that includes many, many different kinds of healthy or unhealthy foods. Um, you know, I mean, our, 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 there's only... This is marketing research. It's research aimed at getting a greater market share. I'm not in favor of it. I don't consider it science. And um, Corinna Hawkes in Europe said, this kind of research should be published in the Journal of Industry-Funded Research. (laughs) Um. One more? Yes? Claire? Claire? One more? I, there's a hand up right here. I don't know how you want to do this. Um. Just a quick question. Uh, in reading tobacco industry documents, you know, it was clear, uh, of course, Philip Morris funds stuff, but there were some, some cases that were surprising. So I'm not surprised to hear Coca-Cola. Who surprised you the most that you found in your research? I was surprised by the enormity of the of the companies that were involved in funding research to try to get marketing advantages. That really amazed me. I had no idea that there were so many. Read the book. It's fun. Thank you, Thank you so very much. much. Thank you. And I want to honor uh, Murr Silverman, who's with us in the side of the auditorium, for his groundbreaking work that Marion discussed. Thanks, Murr. So now uh, I'd like to turn our attention to the next chapter of our journey, which has to do with how the tobacco documents transform tobacco control and how the food documents will have an impact. And Stan Glantz was... Uh, who's a professor, distinguished professor at UC San Francisco, will give you that story. Thank you. What I'm here to talk about is, is the food archive and its importance and, and, and what role the tobacco archive has played. And uh, rather than me talking about it, there was a film released a couple of years ago called Merchants of Doubt, which if you haven't seen, you should watch, because it's a great film. Even if I wasn't in it, it would be great. 
um, at, which I think gives them the best and most succinct history of the tobacco documents and kind of where they came from and some of the things they show and some of the effects that they've had. And then afterwards, I'm going to come up and make a few additional uh, comments uh, and, and, and tie it into what's going on in, in food. And j just one thing before we do that and to kind of set up um, uh, Kim Wynn, who's going to talk, uh, when Marion talked about the similarities and the interlocking nature of these different industries, it turns out there's like about 40,000 sugar documents in the tobacco documents, which Kim will be talking about. How do you spell your name? G-L-A-N-T-Z. It's okay, I got it. I can give you a card. No, it's all right. No? Let's, let's do that. Stan, right? Or Stanton. Are you a doctor? I got involved in the tobacco issue in 1978 over the issue of clean indoor air. And, and back then, the radical thing was just to have a non-smoking section. Good evening. The captain has turned off the no smoking sign. Smoking was everywhere. It was on airplanes. It was in restaurants. I work in a hospital. People were smoking in the hospital. What in the world is so wrong about smoking in the workplace? I mean, I smoke on my job every night. I'm not hurting anyone. Well, that's bullshit. One thing you've got to be willing to do when you're doing science that is not in the interest of these giant corporations, when people come after you for baloney reasons, you've got to be willing to stand up to them. I don't know of any evidence, any conclusive evidence. Here. We spent a long time banging our heads up against the wall because these guys are rich, they're politically powerful, and they're mean. How old are you? I'm 42. 42. Now, I smoke four packs of cigarettes a day. I am 55. Yeah. You, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Tell me if I don't look 20 years younger than this. But when you went to policymakers or the media and talk about just how dishonest and manipulative they were, people would kind of think you were a little paranoid delusional. And then the whole situation changed. I'm sitting in my office on the 11th floor of the hospital, and a box arrives. And in there was thousands of pages of internal tobacco industry documents. The documents in the box came from somebody on the inside working for the companies, copying a bunch of documents and sneaking them out and making them available to people on the outside. We now have over 80 million pages, and the great bulk of those have become available because of lawsuits against the tobacco companies. The thing that is so important about the documents is it gets you behind the veil. It, it, it gets you inside the companies where you don't have to speculate about what they're thinking and doing. You can read about it. That the tobacco companies knew smoking caused cancer in the 50s. It is not known whether cigarettes cause cancer. That they knew that smoking caused heart disease in the 60s. 
No causal relationship between cigarette smoking and heart disease. No, as a matter of fact, there are studies... But they knew nicotine was an addictive drug in the 60s. Yet 30 years later, the CEOs of all the big tobacco companies stood up under oath and told Congress that nicotine wasn't addictive. Do you believe nicotine is not addictive? I believe nicotine is not addictive, yes. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. It's not addictive. It's not addictive. Not addictive. Not addictive. Not addictive. The science that they did internally was very good, often decades ahead of what people on the outside were doing. It's just that you don't want the people on the outside to know what that evidence is saying. The tobacco issue broke into the public consciousness in 1953. Faced with undeniable evidence that smoking was killing people, they did what any self-respecting big corporation would do. They hired a public relations firm. And Hill and Knowlton said to the heads of all the big tobacco companies, you know, you can't deny the evidence. You can't say smoking doesn't cause cancer. But what you can do is cast doubt. I think there's a great deal of doubt as to whether or not cigarettes are harmful. Smoking may be hazardous, it may not be. Smoking may be hazardous, it may not be. It may be or it may not be, we don't know. None of the things which have been found in tobacco smoke are at concentrations which can be considered harmful. But the components themselves can be considered harmful, can they not? Anything can be considered harmful. Applesauce is harmful if you get too much of it. I don't think many people are dying from applesauce. They're not eating that much. The playbook that Big Tobacco developed to attack science worked for them for 50 years. Because every day that they can delay effective policy action is one more day that they can make more money. They can be out there selling a product that's killing a half a million Americans a year and get away with it. And so other businesses that were faced with regulatory challenges had to look at this and say, boy, if this works for tobacco, we ought to be able to use that playbook too. What's happened is that people working on a whole range of other issues that you wouldn't think had much to do with tobacco have gone into the documents and found things that we never even would have thought to have looked for. So, I mean, one of the points that, that, the, that the clip touched on is the importance of reading what these companies are saying in their own words. Because, you know, I had been working, as I said in the film, on the tobacco issue for a long time before the documents appeared. And, and, and when you're busy doing battle with these guys and down in the trenches, you begin to intuit what they're doing and how they're doing it and just how cynical they are. But when you go and tell that to people, you just people view you as like out of your mind. 
And what's already started happening, thanks to the work in, done out of the food documents by work people here, like Kristen Kearns, who will be talking, and, and some of the excellent reporting that's been done, is that starting to change. And there's no question but that the advent of the tobacco documents helped lead to the creation of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, which is the first global public health treaty negotiated by the WHO. Uh, there all but about five countries in the world have ratified it. Of course, we haven't. But it's detectably reduced cigarette consumption around the world. And in the debates to get the FCT passed, in the debates to implement the FCTC, the documents have played a hugely important role in changing the way policymakers think about these issues. And in fact, a very important provision in the FCTC with Stella Bialos, who I think is here. What's that important provision? <laughs> Article 5.3, Stella lives and breathes and sleeps and dreams about Article 5.3. It says, essentially, that the tobacco companies should not play any formal role beyond their role as citizens in the policy-making process, and that the policy-making process needs to be insulated from industry influence. And I, I think that the, the work with the sugar documents or the food documents is already beginning to have those effects. And I'm very pleased and excited that UCSF is doing this. I want to just second what Chris said, is it's a really unique role that we're playing here. No other university that I know of has been willing to stand up to industries in this manner. And the university got sued twice over this, thanks to the work we're doing, and we won twice. And, you know, I, it just shows that if you stand up to bullies, you can, with a little help, beat them. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Stan. We have a few minutes for questions and answers. Are there any questions? Because the archives are uh, a welcome place for some uh, preferably hidden documents, uh, have the archives or might they well become an attractive place for me as a whistleblower to deliver you a box and say, I think you want to know this? Sure. Right? Yeah. Has it, Here's has, the official in charge. <laughs> I don't want to speak for you. Uh, absolutely. We'd love to have a, any and all documents and materials. Um, we enc encourage lawyers not... We, we encourage lawyers not to agree to seal documents after settlements. Um, and Rachel Takeda, who is in the front row here and will be speaking later, is the first person you should talk to about that. But any of us from the library would be happy to talk to you. Yeah, and in fact, that, that does raise two important questions, and that is, uh, when I first got the original box of documents, which is, you know, I never counted up the pages. It was about four or 5,000 pages, and then I got another several thousand pages that the companies released voluntarily. A lot of people thought I was nuts to simply work with the library and put them on the Internet, that I had this trove of research materials, and I should milk it 
till it was dry and then make it available. And, and I don't regret having just put it all out there for a second because there's so much stuff in there that, that you just, I mean, no one person can deal with it. And plus, different people bring different perspectives to these documents. And there are things people have found in there and written out of the documents that I, in a million years, would have never even thought to have looked for. The second thing is, is you know, a lot of reporters have a lot of documents, and we would love to get them, and there has been a reluctance to just give them away for the same kind of hoarding mentality, and those are great things. And also the point Chris made, one of the things that was radically different about the tobacco litigation in the 90s compared to typical litigation is Hubert Humphrey III, who was then the Attorney General of Minnesota, who had sued the tobacco companies and got the original, we thought, a lot of documents, 30 million pages. Now we have 90 million pages. The, he would not settle the case without making the documents public, and that's very unusual. Usually the discovery is destroyed. And I remember Humphrey saying to me at the time, because there were lots of big political fights going on, the most important thing that's going to come out of the tobacco litigation is the truth. You know, more important than the billions of dollars that were paid. And I think it's, I know there are some lawyers here. I think it's really crucial that lawyers make an advanced commitment to say, we, at the termination of these proceedings or earlier if possible, are not going to agree to a settlement where the discovery materials are destroyed. We want them. So... Another question? So just a question. You, you, you talked about keeping industry out of the, the policymaking process. Uh, but, you know, the, this year we saw the sugar industry do the sort of uh, kamikaze uh, pro- proposition threat right. to get the soda taxes stripped out. Right. So clearly we're not anywhere near that. Um, what do you see are steps we can, that the research community can be doing to keep decision-making from – going that route again. Okay, well, there's two. And again, if you want to learn all about Article 5.3, I'm sure Stella would be glad to give a seven-hour lecture about it. But the what 5.3 says, it, it's about the legislative and regulatory process. You know, the, the, these companies are citizens to... They have a right to make public comments. They have a right to testify. They have a right to lobby. But they should not be on, represented on decision-making committees. They should not be uh, in, involved in the behind-the-scenes negotiations and the writing of legislation and regulations. That's what 5.3 says. They should not be like the FDA Tobacco Product Scientific Advisory Committee has three industry representatives on it by law. That's a violation of Article 5.3. In terms of dealing with the political battles, like the, the sugar industry pulled here and getting preemption, I think 
think that's, you, that's just a political fight people need to duke out. But I can tell you that the kind of research that's come out of the documents on tobacco that we've done, we know what their strategies are. We know what they think the important issues in determining whether or not to oppose something are. We know a lot of the politicians they gave money to. We know the third parties and front groups that they've set up. We know how they try to do things under the under the uh, uh, in the shadows and operate through surrogates. And the mere fact that all that is known now makes it much, much harder for them to get away with it. And, I mean, one of the most amazing things, we, uh, San Francisco became the first city to prohibit the, fa the sale of all tobacco, pro flavored tobacco products. Okay? Something the FDA just chickened out on today, I heard. And and one, the high point of the thing was when, when one of these industry surrogates got up and came up with their standard line, uh, Marsha Cohn, who was the, or no, yeah, no, Malia Cohn, Marsha Cohn's here, she's a lawyer. Malia Cohn, the supervisor who carried the bill, at the end of the thing, she said to the guy, I've never heard an elected say this in a public meeting, thank you so much for so accurately reflecting the tobacco industry's talking points. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you get to the point where decision makers even think to say that, that's a huge amount of progress. And it is the work out of the documents which has empowered people and given them the understanding it takes to have that view and to stand up to that pressure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now we're going to pivot to the archive and the work that Kristen Kearns, who's an assistant professor in the School of Dentistry and at the Institute for Health Policy Studies, who will share with you her journey in the discovery of documents. Thank you so much, Claire. So I'm going to share with you uh, some of the details on documents related to the sugar industry that we've uncovered that are part of the archive. But before I do that, I just want to share a little bit of my personal backstory on how I ended up in front of you here today. And it starts in 2007, almost more than a decade ago now. I'm trained as a dentist, and I was attending a dental conference learning about the links between gum disease and diabetes. And I was given this brochure by uh, a physician working for the Centers for Disease Control as part of the National Diabetes Education Program. And this pamphlet was teaching dentists how to help manage diabetes uh, in their patients. And I noticed that the diet advice said to increase fiber, limit saturated fats and salt, and that's what would help control blood glucose, blood pressure, and cholesterol. But it didn't say anything about reducing sugar consumption, which I found to be strange. We actually had a second keynote speaker who handed out his book, which was called The Fast Food Guide to Nutrition, and I flipped open to the drinks page, which ranked Lipton brisk sweet tea as a healthy drink. This has something like 56 grams of sugar in it. 
and I honestly couldn't believe what I was seeing. So much so that I jumped up from my seat and chased the speaker down as he was trying to leave to catch his flight and asked him, you know, how can you say this? And his response to me was, there is no evidence linking sugar to chronic disease. And I was literally speechless. You know, I'm a dentist, sugar and dental caries. Dental caries is the number one chronic disease in children. But I had no retort. Uh, So I walked away from this conference not getting out of it what I had expected and sort of befuddled. So I went home wanting to understand more. And at the time, I had been reading Mary Nessel's book, Food Politics. I had been reading Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. So in the back of my mind, I was suspecting that maybe there was some sugar industry influence on what I was learning at this conference. And at the time, this is a screenshot from the Sugar Association's website from back in 2007. The Sugar Association represents the cane and beet sugar producers, producers, table sugar. And they were boasting that a 1,000 papers had dispelled the link between sugar and diabetes, hypertension, behavior problems, and obesity. And they also listed several government reports which they claimed had also exonerated sugar from being linked to chronic disease. So I was even more confused uh, about what I was learning from looking at this material on the web. So I started after work going home and just searching on the internet, trying to learn more about these sugar industry trade groups. Who are they? How long have they been around? And what have they been up to? And after about two years of searching, I happened to be at the Denver Public Library, and I typed in sugar into their local library catalog, and references to the Great Western Sugar Company popped up. The Great Western Sugar Company was a sugar company based in Denver, specializing in sugar beets, which is a major crop in Colorado. They went out of business in the 1970s and ended up actually donated, donating their records to local libraries across Colorado. Much of them had been screened by their lawyers, but a few boxes slipped through related to nutrition and nutrition policy. So I went up to take a look at them at Colorado State University, and the first folder that I opened contained this confidential memo from the Sugar Association, and I knew I was on to something good. Uh, What I had found were documents related to an award that the Sugar Association won from the Public Relations Society of America in 1976, where they set out to, among other things, influence the Food and Drug Administration's safety review of sugar. And I wrote about this teaming up with Gary Taubes in Mother Jones back in 2012. Here's... uh, a copy of that FDA report that they set out to influence. And when the Sugar Association applied for that public relations award, one of the outcomes uh, they submitted was that the FDA report uh, was highly supportive of sugar, making it unlikely that sugar will be subject to legislative restriction in the coming years. While writing this paper... uh, I started locating some additional sources. So the first one was in Colorado, the Great Western Sugar Company. Uh, Clues from the material in that archive led me to the University of Illinois 
Roger Adams, who was a chemist, uh, worked as a scientific advisor to the Sugar Association in the 1950s. The University of Florida has a major collection from Cuban sugar companies with a lot of material related to the Sugar Association, material at Harvard. There's actually Coca-Cola files at Emory, uh, et cetera. So when I came to UCSF, I had located quite a bit of material across the country. And just to give you some historical perspective on the Sugar Association, they actually got their start in 1943. They're originally known as the Sugar Research Foundation, and they evolved in certain ways to become now the Sugar Association based in the U.S. and the World Sugar Research Organization, which is based in London and represents the global sugar industry. And one thing I want to point out is the date 1943, because as Stan and his clip from Merchants and Doubt just showed, the tobacco industry really got their start working with public relations firms in the 1950s. So the sugar industry uh, was up to some similar tactics going back to the 1940s, which is earlier than the tobacco industry. And as a matter of fact, I was able to find a document in the Tobacco Industry Documents Library about the Sugar Research Foundation. And this is a picture of Robert Hockett, who was the first scientific director of the Sugar Research Foundation. And in 1954, actually the day that the tobacco industry announced they were forming their Tobacco Industry Research Committee that was run by Hill and Knowlton, uh, Dr. Hockett wrote a letter to the tobacco industry. And he told them that he had organized and directed research projects in medical schools, hospitals, universities, and colleges, which had exonerated sugar of most of the charges that had been laid against it. And he told the tobacco industry that the challenge of the present situation to the cigarette industry is so similar to that which I helped the sugar industry to meet that I'm tempted now to suggest that my experience and background may be useful. And in fact, the tobacco industry did hire him, and he went on to become the assistant scientific director of the Tobacco Industry Research Committee. So I'm just going to share with you a few of our papers, uh, and just quickly with some highlights, uh, that working together with Stan Glanz and Laura Schmidt. Uh, so the Sugar Research Foundation funded over 300 research projects between 1945 and 1974, and we've written about three of them so far, so there's a lot more out there to be uncovered and written about. And so this study looked at the first heart disease research project the Sugar Research Foundation funded in the 1960s. They funded Harvard researchers. They set the study objectives, referencing what Dr. Nessel was talking about. Uh, and this, this was a review of all of the evidence that was emerging linking sugar to coronary heart disease uh, and influence on cholesterol levels and triglyceride levels in the blood. And so this review really cast doubt on this new emerging evidence linking sugar to heart disease. And meanwhile, they also overstated the certainty of the evidence linking saturated fat to coronary heart disease. Another example has to do with agenda setting, setting research priorities. We wrote a paper looking at the Sugar Research Foundation's influence at our National Institute of Dental Research, which is what it was called at the time. Uh, they launched a program in the 1970s that was supposed to end tooth decay within a generation, and we found that the sugar industry had significant influence over their research priorities and were successful at helping to focus research on non-dietary interventions for tooth decay, things like developing an enzyme that you could add to toothpaste or foods that would break up the plaque on your teeth rather than having to reduce sugar consumption. 
And a third example, looking at another heart disease research project that the sugar industry funded. This time, it was an animal research study. Even though they had uh, discredited the value of animal research, the sugar industry was actually funding their own animal research, looking at the effects of sugar on heart disease. And they did this study in the 1960s that proved to them that the bacteria in the gut actually has a connection between consuming sugar and then elevating your triglyceride levels in the blood. And they also found that sucrose elevated an enzyme that had been linked to bladder cancer at the time. However, instead of publishing this data, they ended funding for the study, and the results were never published. And we believe that had these results been published at the time, it would have strengthened the case in the 1960s that sugar was linked to coronary heart disease, and it was, would have been likely that the FDA might have scrutinized sucrose as a potential carcinogen. While I was working on these papers, I was also exploring additional archives and looking for more documents. So expanding beyond the collections that I'd found before I came to UCSF, uh, now it's over 20 different collections spread out all over the country, including actually Vancouver, BC. And really, we've just been looking in the US. I think if we started to look globally, we'd find quite a few more. Uh, the types of documents, where these, what types of sources these are. So I mentioned the Great Western Sugar Company. Several of them are old sugar company records that end up in libraries. It's, it's quite surprising, but they do exist. But also, these documents come from uh, researchers in many cases who were consulting for the industry, and their areas of expertise might have been chemistry, nutrition science, food technology, agricultural science, but we also have some material from consumer groups as well, which pr provides context on uh, regulation and legislation looking historically. And then to give you an idea of uh, some of the companies beyond the Sugar Association that you might find mentioned in the documents, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, General Foods, General Mills, Nabisco, Hershey are names that pop up in this material. There are also many other trade groups beyond the Sugar Association, so the International Life Sciences Institute. The American Beverage Association used to be called the National Soft Drink Association, so there's material in there related to them, as well as the National Confectioners Association. And some of the themes I think we'll find having to do with legislation and regulation, specific to foods and food additives, as well as dietary supplements, probably on agricultural chemicals, labor, trade, and advertising and marketing issues, as well as uh, industry tactics to influence public opinion, how they've used the media, set out to persuade health opinion leaders, uh, sugar-using industries, meaning Coca-Cola, who has a choice on using sucrose or high-fructose corn syrup or other sweeteners, as well as the consuming public. And just looking towards the future, I think we've really only begun to scratch the surface on the material that's out there to learn about industry 
tactics. Um, as was already mentioned, a, a whistleblower or a new lawsuit uh, coming forward with more current documents. But there are also many more out, many more archives out there to be found. This is actually a picture of a collection at Vanderbilt University uh, from Nevin Scrimshaw, a key nutritionist uh, with many, many uh, years of experience. And this is a, a collection that's just sitting there in their basement that has yet to be processed. So they let me look through it, and it was very exciting to look at it, but it's going to be a long time before they actually process this. But I do wonder how many more file cabinets and how many more basements are there out there uh, to find this material. Uh, With that, thank you very much. So a few questions for Chris's exciting work. In the back here. Hi, my name is Christina with the Public Health Department. Um, Kristen, thank you so much for your work. Um, I was just curious, are, what would you describe as the most, the biggest, the worst offenses that the industry um, has committed in hiding um, their impact on health? I think the story is going to be sort of a larger story of all of these actions coming together. I think that... Um, Uh, It's a comprehensive set of strategies and tactics, and it's hard to pick out any one. And I think uh, the enormity of just the scale of the work that they've undertaken, I think that's, to me, the biggest piece. It's really hard to point to just one document or one event and say, it's this. Hi, my name is Buka, and um, this is sort of amazing because I I show the film Sugar Coated with you and Mr. Getz and Rob Lustig to my middle school health class over in Petro. So this is like all the middle schoolers can't believe the enormity of what you're talking about. They, They really glaze over with the possibility that this could be true. So what is, piggybacking on the last question, what are, what are the things that you would ask the layperson or Let's say the home shopper, the, the mom or dad who does the grocery shopping, what are the little things that can be done that can translate into big effects down the road? Thank you. Um, well, I think participating and commenting on, uh, on policies and, and as, as they come available. So, for instance, the, the Food and Drug Administration um, adding the line on added sugars on packaged food products. I think this is an important thing for the everyday average consumer to be able to understand uh, how much added sugar is actually in a product. Uh, And this is being held up. It's been delayed. And so putting pressure, you know, commenting as a citizen that you feel that this is an important thing that needs to be implemented, I think that that could be uh, an important action to take as one example. Um, But then getting involved, I mean... uh, other uh, methods to reduce sugar consumption are being proposed at the state, local, federal level, and, and becoming an active participant is one way. There's one question in the back. <clears throat> Hi, Chris. Um, I don't want the end of your story to go bad. So as you detail your success in finding these documents, isn't there a risk that they're going to be working at destroying them as quickly as possible? Uh, you mean other documents out there in the yeah, world? Yeah. Uh, I suppose that could be a risk, but uh, perhaps Chris might ha- be able to speak to this more than me, but I think libraries in general work very hard uh, to 
maintain those documents to be available to the public once they are in libraries. Uh, so hopefully, so are they safe where they're at um, in a library? There's no risk that somebody can convince the very young librarian who doesn't know what those dirty boxes are that, well, let me carry them off for you. I'm going to let Chris chime in on that one. (laughs) Yeah, so um, graduate degree trained librarians and archivists presumably have been inculcated in the culture of librarianship and and the profession of archives um, to not make those mistakes. Um, In large part, especially at larger academic institutions like like Vanderbilt or UCSF, um, I don't see this as a worry. Um, I really think that there are collection development policies and retention policies and retention schedules and things like that that protect against this kind of thing. Now that said, there are, uh, for example, you know, small nonprofits might have an archive, or the documents that we seek might be in someone's um, house where you know their father was a researcher and it's in their garage, and those things are subject to potential loss. Um, so we encourage people to transfer those kinds of materials to professional archives. As, as much as possible, as quickly as possible, so that they can preser- be preserved for the future, for future generations. We have, a, we have time for one or two more questions. In the back here. Um, just as American working culture has changed over the decades away from as many paper materials and really to more online communications, phone communications, I mean, how do researchers like you view the validity of interviews, for instance, with former employees? I mean, we have thousands of people living that have worked for these trade associations still work there or no longer work there. Um, how do you see research, you know, um, oral research or oral archives being a part of this in the future um, with, you know, people just don't work that way anymore, sending a written letter to say, I look forward to working with you and sending it through the mail, for example. Yeah, I think that uh, oral histories are a key piece uh, as well. I mean, I think any uh, that can, anything that can add to the story, being able to use multiple sources beyond just textual documents is going to make the research uh, a richer endeavor. Uh, so I think that's certainly important. I know that libraries are adapting now to our new styles of working and, and looking at ways to continue to uh, archive current material, but thankfully that's not something that I have to worry about. That's their job. Uh, but it is a concern, and it is a different way of working going forward. Time for one more question, maybe on this side. Okay. Over here on the, on the back. Hi, my name is Zach. I was wondering that sugar-using industries like the American Beverage Association as you know, they've you know, have this commitment to reducing sugar in the drinks, and they know that the tide of public opinion is against them. It seems like they're going to move more towards these artificial sweeteners, which may you know be just as harmful or even more. I was wondering what sorts of what, it, what you found related to like these sucralose, aspartame, in these documents. 
Uh, that's a great question. I think there's actually going to be quite a bit of material related to artificial sweeteners in these documents. Uh, from the sugar industry side of the story, they've sponsored a lot of research trying to uh, discredit the therapeutic value of artificial sweeteners. They've tried to link artificial sweeteners uh, to, to hazardous health effects. As well, the artificial sweetener industry has sponsored their own studies. Um, so, yes, yeah, so who do you believe? But also there's some material from a lawsuit between the Sugar Association and the Corn Refiners Association kind of battling uh, between uh, what you can and can't say about high fructose corn syrup and sugar. And the Sugar Association has also, I believe, sued Splenda for their, some of their language around sucralose. So, yes, you're gonna, there's some material in there for sure. Yes. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.